And so I think there are a whole set of problems here that are just unexplored. Like, I don't think there are that many people solving them because they're tricky. They're very user focused. They're not as much fun as building up the hub or the platform or the ML ops tool. And so I think that this is where there's going to be a lot of room for people to innovate and not just us, but I think in the market. And I think you see some people doing things like this right now, but it's still really early days. Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. Jared Roche, co-founder and CTO at OctoML, joins us to talk about his experience building an AI and ML company in such a rapidly changing product market space and environment right now. And in our conversation, we cover strategies for recruiting co-founders from academia, being dynamic and navigating different strategy changes in the AI ML space, serving both high and low sophistication users, making the transition from a technology-focused to a product-focused company, shifting from open source to an enterprise business model, some product market strategy lessons for machine learning businesses, plus Jared's predictions on the machine learning market participation and evolution as a whole. About Jared, Jared completed his PhD at the University of Washington. He's a computer scientist at heart and loves taking insights from the research community and applying them to build intelligent, performant, and powerful systems. Jared's background includes experiences in web development, JIT compilers, software engineering, computer architecture, functional programming, compilers, verification databases, systems, and machine learning. About OctoML, OctoML makes AI more sustainable through efficient model execution and automation to scale services and reduce engineering burden. They make AI more accessible by enabling models to run on a broad set of devices and easier to deploy without specialized skills. Enjoy this conversation with Jared Roche. Jared, just want to say welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. How's your day going? Great. It's actually surprisingly very sunny today. And so uh, as a Seattleite, every time the sun is out, my inner joy meter goes up quite a bit. I used to live on the beach for a while and I never appreciated when the sun was out. And now I see it and I'm like ready to run outside. So that's got my energy up today. I relate to that so much. I went to school at San Diego State and then I started working mm -hmm. in higher ed and traveled Illinois, Indiana and Michigan. So when I started working with, you know, students at Michigan State or University of Michigan and stuff, they would turn to me and I'd tell them, you know, where I'm from. And they'd be like, Patrick, people here spend their entire lives trying to get to the beach and you moved away. What is wrong with you? No, I feel you. When I decided to go to grad school and I moved from Santa Barbara to Seattle, people also gave me the same reaction. They're like, are you crazy? Like, what are you doing? There, there are pros and cons. You know, you get a nice spring and a nice fall. The summers are actually nice in Seattle too, but there are trade-offs for sure. Totally. Well, to get into like our, our first question, we just mentioned you were in academia before start, starting OctoML. Tell us about that transition from academia to industry and the origin story behind OctoML. It all started really, well, I think maybe zooming way out, I, I've always had a really or not traditional path. I was about to go to college for music school and I applied to music schools and I auditioned. I didn't get in wanted. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do next? And I actually ended up going to UCSB where I did undergrad. I was kind of drawn to this College of Creative Studies program, which originally had or has a music composition program, which was the original draw for me. But I ended up actually going there. I ended up joining the computer science program. It's kind of a self-described place as a, a graduate school for undergrads. And so I think that kind of really started the academia trend for me of like I got involved in research. I got really excited about ideas. And that's where I got really passionate about the deep part of technology. And, you know, that played out as I was in college, but also because I kind of needed to pay for college. I was also on the hustle for looking for jobs. So I think my very first year, I started working in a small startup that was about three people. It's kind of ill-fated for many reasons, but we were building a cloud storage product. And it was like spun out from one of the professors. It was right as Dropbox and Google Drive and everything was kind of 
coming online and becoming prominent. And so timing was really bad. But I learned a ton in that, that early experience where we failed miserably. It was a lot of fun doing the startup. I really liked that piece. And multiple times I actually tried to go work for a big company when I was an undergrad, tried to intern, whatever. It never worked for one reason or another. <laughs> and I ended up actually at another startup in Santa Barbara that was about Series C, I think, when I started there. And they've grown quite a bit. They've been around, I think, since 2007 now. That was like where I, I kind of saw it going right, where we raised more money while I was there. It kind of grew from 50 to 200 people. I was working really closely with the CTO. And so that kind of left me with an entrepreneurial bug. But it was in ad tech, and I was not super excited about that. It was just not really like what my where my passions lied. I decided then to kind of, and I was still doing research this entire time. And I was also really interested in open source. So I think those have always been the three threads really in my life that I've been negotiating. I was working on actually the Rust programming language. I'm sure many people know it now because it's very popular. But at the time, it was still pre 1.0. It was still very different back then where you kind of just show up and write code and throw it in the compiler. And I, I sort of worked on it up until 1.0. And I also realized at that time, everyone I was working with there had a PhD or there were a couple people who didn't, but it was mostly a lot of really smart people who had kind of had their background in building this kind of tool. And I think that was the final kind of straw for me, like, I'm gonna go to grad school. I think in the back of my head, though, there was always this like desire to return to doing the startup world. But I think in my mind, I kind of needed to do all these prerequisites before I would be ready to do that. So I went and did my PhD, you know, I kind of put my head down for a couple of years. And we went and did a bunch of interesting stuff and in research, you know, and I kind of at that time, I ended up working with some bigger companies, I spent like a better part of a year at Microsoft Research working on some stuff inside the research org there. And then I came back in about 2017 to UW full time. Machine learning had been happening all when I was in grad school. So there was, um, at the time, you know, my friend Joe was working on that stuff. And I remember him writing C code in the lab, like sitting there. For some reason, machine learning person, but he always hung out with the programming language people in the lab. So he was always sitting there writing C code. And every time a new GPU came out, he would go re-optimize his code. And my background kind of was in programming languages and compilers. That's what I had been working on in research for all those years. And so I was like, this seems really bad. Like, this seems really painful. And then I kind of saw TensorFlow coming out. And my co-founder, Tian Chi of OctoML, was working on MXNet. He, you know, that was one of the big projects that he spearheaded. And so we, there were all these kind of things in the air. And when I came back, Tian Chi and, and my other co-founder, Thierry, had kind of started working on this project called TVM, which is sort of the nucleus of OctoML. TVM was designed to allow us to take machine learning uh, model from, you know, let's say the one that you trained on the big NVIDIA GPU at the time, I think it was a 1080 or, you know, something like that, pretty bad uh, these days, to take it and put it on a Raspberry Pi. Because at the time, it was actually really hard to get these things to run on these sort of commodity devices. And I think the underpinning for us always was an excitement about seeing sort of machine learning from three angles, which is that there's the algorithms, which had been growing, like, I mean, some of the algorithms are actually pretty old, you know, people were doing this stuff in the back in the 80s and 90s. But there was this growth in it kind of in the early 2010s. Then there was also the growth in data, which obviously everyone knows about kind of the big data movement. But then the final pillar was all the systems, whether it's hardware or, you know, GPUs, evolution, the software stack, CUDA, things like Theano, they all kind of created this genesis of new ideas. And we were like, hey, there's a lot of people working in these other areas, but the systems world is not that well served. And so our kind of first hypothesis was that we could do this from the compiler lens. And that's where TVM kind of came out of. And so we started working on that in 2017, 2018. I think around the middle of 2018, we started to see some big companies using it. We had some people come to TVMCon and talk about how they were using it at Facebook or Microsoft to optimize some of their models and get them into production. And so I think for all of us, there was a little bit of an angle, and especially me, and I think we all probably have different versions of this. Luis, my co-founder and CEO, has done a couple startups and was a, I forget what Madrona's exact title for them are, I believe Venture Partners, what they call them Madrona, but mm -hmm. he was sort of like a due diligence technical advisor to one of the investment firms in Seattle. And I had that like kind of entrepreneurial bent inside of me still. And I was like, hey, 
maybe we should go do a startup. And so it kind of became this background thread where I talked to Tianchi about it at some point. I talked to Thierry, my other co-founder. I talked to Luis. And there's also sort of a confluence events going on where Luis was about to have sabbatical again. So he'd have like at least one year off and turned out to be much more than one year. Uh, and then, you know, Thierry was about to graduate. Tianchi was about to graduate. And I was not anywhere close to graduating yet. And so we were in this funny position where the, most of the stars aligned. And so by like the early 2019, we were like, we should go do a, do a company. And I think it kind of came back to those pillars, which is like, hey, there's no one really building like a systems offering right now. Like there are all these things focusing the other aspects of the job. But like, what if we go work on this? And so that was like the core driver of, of us starting the company. And then, you know, that that led into many months of figuring it out. A couple things stand out to me. Number one, the academic environment, like you're talking about in the space that you were you were deeply immersed in, sounds so ripe with ideas, kind of on the bleeding edge of a lot of these different areas. Like it sounds like that was such an exciting environment just to understand. Like you were talking about, like the different professors spinning off different ideas or folks that were doing certain research and then spun off into different companies. Like that just sounds so rich and exciting. I think the other part that stands out to me related to this is your just historical context on the trends of how we've got to where we are in terms of AI, ML, or different types of just like. AI, ML oriented companies, like how we got to where we are today, um, like just the rich context there is so cool. Yeah, for sure. I think looking back, it wasn't really, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty kind of thing. Like, I think it's a little clearer to, to categorize, but you kind of saw these little blooms growing and then popping off and kind of like spores spreading and then, you know, something else grows and then grows again. And like, even my, my co-founder, Tian Chi, for example, on the academic side, like he's really been focused on like open source machine learning system stuff for even longer than, than we have. You know, his first project was XGBoost, which is like a, like one of the most popular uh, tr- uh, gradient boosting libraries on the internet. You know, for a long time, all the Kaggle winners and stuff were using it. And then he kind of just did that. You know, then MXNet was the next thing. And then we went to do TVM. And so the, I think there was that aspect. I think I had the open sourcing of like tool building. And like you sort of now looking back, it's like this nice confluence of those skill sets. And I also think for UW, University of Washington in particular, Berkeley and Stanford and other programs have kind of more of this public perception of entrepreneurship and there's all these great companies that come out of it but it's honestly been slow really outside of stanford a lot of other companies like even berkeley pre sort of databricks there were not nearly as many startups coming out of it i think i talked to a couple investors who were the junior folks at andreessen at that time and there weren't that many companies coming out of berkeley in comparison to say stanford i think uw is kind of has been in that phase too, where until recently, there hasn't been that many student led startups where like the PhD mm-hmm. students went into the startup, you know, professors would go spin stuff out, but it'd be a pretty rare occurrence. And I think that that was also where we're at, where it was like some excitement to like bring some entrepreneurial energy like to the university, because there are all these really smart people and great ideas, but there's also not necessarily a path to follow. So for example, like one of our early investors is TNC's advisor, Carlos Gestrin, and, and Carlos is a now professor at Stanford, he moved a, a few years ago. But Carlos had sold his company Turi to Apple, which was kind of the nucleus of a lot of their machine learning efforts. And the teams went on to build things like Face ID, a lot of the Apple ML features that we now enjoy on our iPhones. And I think that also was like one of those, you know, gestation events for some of the entrepreneurship as we saw someone go do it once. And then there was a company XNOR that went out and did it next. And Octomouse kind of was the third company in that series of going out and trying to turn some of this technology into the machine learning technology in particular into products and, and into services that people can consume. Awesome. I have so many follow-up questions from just these stories. You mentioned music composition originally pursuing. What was the instrument that you were playing? So I, I really liked playing guitar growing up, and I played probably like five or six instruments, like not very well, like um, to be clear, like I wasn't good at many of them. But, you know, I, I kind of flitted around, and I think I, I liked writing music the best, straight, you know, sitting down and scoring stuff. And I thought that was a lot of fun. And, and in retrospect, it has some of the 
the enjoyment of programming too, where there's sort of a puzzle to figure out and you have this iteration feedback loop, especially with the modern digital composition tools where you can change some stuff around and play it back and iterate. Um, and I like the music theory aspect of it too. We go back more to the academia side. For a couple of years, I was really into these really fancy theorem provers that are being used by like fields medalists and stuff to do mechanized mathematics. And all that puzzle solving stuff is very similar. It's just like advanced Legos or something. Like I, I don't think it's much different than enjoying building Legos. It's just like the, the instructions got harder or the pieces are more complicated. But that's the way I like to think about it. I love it. The other thing I had to ask was, you know, you'd mentioned your first startup when you were in grad school. Were there certain lessons or failures from that experience that are informing what you're doing at OctoML and how you're building out the company? Yeah, I think that so just to clarify that first one was an undergrad, I was actually like 18. when I joined that one. So it was like my first, I don't know, eight months of college or something is when I joined. I was like even less experienced in like a, a million ways. I think, for example, I was tasked with like building a UI and like I'd never, I don't think I'd ever built a web app. Ruby on Rails was like new ish. I think it was like Rails had just come out version two and it was about to come out with three. It was somewhere around that time, like, you know, the 2010 timeframe. Yeah. And so I like went and learned that and built that in like six weeks. And like one of my tasks was to go like port C++ code to Windows or something. And like I'd never written code on Windows ever. And so like there's a lot of just like trial by fire experiences, which I think were great because it was sort of like part of learning is is being able to fail without a lot of fear or, or, or like an environment where you can kind of build some tolerance for failure without consequence. I got a lot of that. I think the thing that informed the most was like how you go into starting a company, which I think we still have made mistakes, obviously, like, you know, you know, I think they're you're continually learning. But you know, I think there's so many times over the years where people are come and they're like, Oh, you're a programmer, I have this crazy idea, let's go do this thing. And you're like, that's a bad idea for these reasons. And I think that was like the first kind of like honing of my sense of like, you know, when I look back, there were tons of challenges where like, some people were kind of where like, one of the people was working on it part time, you know, the investment story, wasn't super figured out. There was a target customer, but it was like poorly qualified. And it wasn't clear if they were ever going to really buy. And like, now when I like look back at from that critical lens, it's like I learned the first cut of those skills that have been sharpened many more times. What you shared there, I think is so important is that all of those things are skills and that like the exposure to them and like getting immersed in that is the most important thing that you can do. I appreciate I appreciate that perspective. Right. I, I mean, that's almost the like starting from zero at 18 or 19, where like a lot of people want to be an engineer when they're like four or something. And I was kind of like a late comer, I would say in that way. All of this stuff is skills. Whenever you change area, role, whatever, there is growth and learning to do. And I think sometimes people see where people are at somehow as like their inherent starting point. And like, it's very rare that that's where people started. You just haven't seen the whole journey to get there. It's sometimes really painful to take that journey yourself. Because when you learn a new thing, like I actually almost miss that sometimes where like, I think as you become more skilled, spend more time in your skill areas, you get less time like going and doing something brand new that you're really bad at. And there's some Mm -hmm. beginner like novelty of like learning something brand new, like learning a new language, for example, like I've been learning a new language the last few years, I'm really bad. And it's kind of fun. Because like, <laughs> like, it's a new skill that I get to acquire. And like, I, I'm not coming from a place of like, hey, I've been doing this for eight years or 10, you know, because like, I think even when I get to the end of my PhD, it's like I've been doing research for like a decade or close to a decade. And there's like a certain boring familiarity in it. And, and I think that growth can be fun if you reframe your perspective on it. I love that perspective. I have a ton of questions around like the world that you're in with OctoML, the business, the strategy, some of the ways that you've approached the business model and product marketing. But I want to ask one more question for this reason, because right now, like I was reading an article, I think earlier this week, and it was talking about PhDs within like the AI ML space are like the most in-demand skill, like tech skill right now. 
and so like people are actively trying to figure out either how to find co-founders or to bring people on to help them build out new products within this space. And so I'm wondering, like, from, from your perspective, like if somebody who like say listening to our show is wanting to start a company, but they they want to bring on like a co-founder or somebody with that PhD AI ML background, do you have any like recruitment advice for somebody working with somebody who maybe is in the middle of a PhD program? at a place like UW, how to bridge that gap? How do you, how do you like, what do you have any secrets on finding a co-founder within that deep academic, deep tech academic space? There may be like two versions of it. So I, I'll, I'll split it because I, I think there's like the startup aware version of that where like, let's say you find a, a PhD who kind of is more like me, where maybe they worked at a startup for, or maybe like some of them, honestly, I've met people who did a startup like as a founder before doing the PhD and they've come back or maybe they were an early employee. Like for example, one of the guys I had met at UW was at MetaMind, which was like this company that Salesforce bought a few years ago as an early employee. And he worked with a bunch of the people who already had done their PhDs at Stanford and other places. And then he came back to UW to do one. I think if you're recruiting people like that, it's a lot harder to impress them because you need to both show that you kind of understand the space from some angle that is complementary to them. And you also have to be technically calibrated enough to impress them that you know what you're talking about. Again, even if you're not technical, because I think even if you're not technical, there's a way to be technically credible. And I think that, you know, some of the best go to market or product folks who don't have technical backgrounds find ways to inhabit that. And so I think you have maybe your work cut out for you a little bit more that way. I think the pro though, is that people who are more startup aware probably will value your skills that are not technical more. Because I think when you go into this world, you realize it's not all about being the best programmer. That kind of almost flips the other way, which is that people who are really technical who want to start a company might really value some of the skills that you have and like put a lot of value on them. But they're also probably going to be overweighted on the technical skills being a lot more important. Like the number of times I've seen on Hacker News or something, people say like, why would you have this person? They can't program or whatever, you know, some something kind of to that effect are really high. And I think the signal there always is these people have never actually tried to build a business by themselves. You know, writing great code is not enough. And so I think that's the angle is like, if you want to find people like that, I think there's many ways to network with them. You know, there's co-founder dating going on. You could drop by some of the programs. You can check in on people's research. But I think you really kind of have to court them in a way that makes it feel like you know what's going on and and that your idea makes sense. Because, you know, I think there's a ton of people out there, obviously, who have like a flash in the pan idea that doesn't really pass muster. And I think that, you know, a lot of smart people are are discerning, even if they haven't, you know, done a business yet. And so just kind of focusing on those things are like, how do you kind of come up as credible and and thoughtful about it? I know that's possible. It it just is a different process, maybe than recruiting, say, co-founder graduated from their MBA, who has different concerns and different thoughts in their head. Thank you. I I appreciate that. Because like, the building the credibility, that seems like a really actionable thing that somebody can do. And then I also really liked your insights about drop by people's programs, check out their research, and then talk to people about it from like a technically credible place, or at least like a, it sounds like an intentionally curious place and like a well thought out idea. Right. I think curiosity is actually key because it's like, I think one thing that as you calibrate your senses, it feel, feels to me at least that overconfidence is one of the like strongest to me negative signals is that when people make really strong claims, it often means to me that they have not either thought very carefully, or they are like being intentionally indirect. And I think that those are things that signals like people might not be able to put into words, but they pick up on because I think when you're in the world of really complicated things, the amount of real clear surety and like black and whiteness you get is pretty low still. And so you if you come out and you're like, this is impossible, or this is easy, or, you know, like kind of these big proclamations, it just really damages your credibility in that sense, because 
is probably not true. Like one thing I've had, you know, the compiler world, I'm like spend so much time on. I've had people tell me like X is impossible. And it doesn't mean that like they are immediately disqualified, but it's like, hey, I actually know that that's not true. And like, there's a moment of like, hey, I like kind of calibrated back that you don't know something. And if you get three or four or five of those, especially when someone's trying to recruit you as a co-founder, I think it's really hard to be like, I'm willing to commit to this person and have a deep partnership with them because they're not even being sort of intellectually honest and humble with me from the get go. Intellectual honesty maybe is another thing to seek out. And I think if you have that, like people will resonate with that, especially to people that you want to start a company with, which is the other angle, like co-founder dating goes both ways, right? (laughs) Most definitely, most definitely. All right, I want to talk about operating in an industry with massive market shifts going on. The background context here is, as many people know, the AI ML world is wild right now with new startups popping like exponentially every week. And you're actually one of the first people that I've had a chance to have a conversation with who's really just like he's been deeply in this scene for years and is sort of has been riding just the evolutions of the space for a really long time and driving them. And so part one of this question is like, what's it like operating in this world, like building a company within this rapidly changing landscape? And then the other is how do you navigate this space with just so much emerging technology? How do you use that to like drive like the core thesis of your company? I'm going to kind of take it backwards, maybe. I think the core thesis part is it like connects us back to the story that I was telling earlier, which is that I think when we when we first started, it was very much like, okay, core thesis is hardware and software around this stuff is complicated. There's a lot of opportunity to automate that and sell that as a service to people. And we're going to do that by kind of adding a new work step to the way that people are working today. And that was like kind of where we set out. And I think even the challenge was that there are already some cracks in that. And like, I don't think we're alone in this for what it's worth either. I think there are lots of ways in which the model was operating in say 2017 or 2019 or even 2021 or even maybe last, you know, last year that have changed quite dramatically. So like, I think at that time, like just to give you a taste of kind of the the rapid evolution, you know, most of the models were being produced in academia or in industry research labs. They were almost all open source. There were a couple like leading edge businesses, you know, the the Fangs or or Mama or Manga or whatever we're calling them these days. You know, <laughs> those companies were kind of deploying deep learning kind of out on the edge of the capabilities ahead of everyone else. But beyond that, like there wasn't a lot going on actually. The market was like really small if you think about it. The amount of people kind of participating in the model construction were pretty low. And so a lot of people who are trying to adopt were just sort of tinkering. And so I think there was kind of a first phase of adoption in that world where a lot of people built whatever worked and got some stuff out the door. And then I think there's sort of the gen one set of companies and tools that came around them, which built around a lot of those assumptions. For example, I think one assumption is everyone's going to train a model, which I think we see with the emergence of OpenAI is like not necessarily true anymore, or stable diffusion, or or, you know mid journey, or whatever whatever is cool as of two and a half hours ago. But like I think the you know. things are shifting so quickly that like the workflow has shifted a lot too. And so I think that that is like one core thing where a thesis around a smaller market that is more, say, heterogeneous in one way, i.e. everyone's building models, and they own the entire life cycle to a more homogeneous one where everyone's kind of consuming models, you know, in different formats or whatever, but like the, the workflow is still pretty similar. It's like a big shift. And so I think if you are one of the companies that has existed before the hype cycle has kind of reached its peak, you're navigating this sort of 1.0, 2.0 transition in the market, or and it might even be more gradiated than that, right? So I think mm-hmm. that's one piece of uncertainty that's actually really hard is that an example I've always used just on the deep tech side is like, 
if you were building a database, it's very hard to build a database, like technically, like it's a lot of hard engineering, but you know what it looks like, like, you know what the shape of it is, you kind of know how it's sold, you kind of know how it's priced, there's a lot less like market and product uncertainty around it. But I think with the emergence of sort of new capabilities, no one really knows is really how I feel. And I I don't think there's like a clear winner in the market today, either. If, If you look out there, even like the open AI margin and long-term profitability is not known. Like I think their usage is up a lot. And I think they're building a product that people are really excited about. But there's a huge question mark sitting for all these companies right now. And I think that's like a big part of that core is betting on a thesis and holding it for five years in this world does not work. And like you can't mm-hmm. be static or I'm back to sports metaphors, I think. You can't be flat-footed. You know, you, you kind of got to be ready uh, for people to take a run at you. And I think that's true for every company because with things changing so quickly, even people who have, are winning today might not be winning tomorrow. And I think you've seen kind of these shifts happening really, really quickly. Um, and so I think that's one core part of the uncertainty is just actually around the thesis. Because I think when we started, we were really focused on that model-only part. And I think the problem for an end user is way bigger. The clarity and the synthesis behind the trends and what's going on in terms of like the difference, like being first, like previously built on all models. Now everybody's consuming a different important having a core thesis for five years isn't really tenable and a good strategy right now. You have to be nimble on your toes to use the sports metaphor. I think really great observation. Right. Uh, you know, it's kind of like playing, I play lacrosse actually at some point, but it's like basketball lacrosse defense, you know, you kind of need to like, you kind of be got to be like on your toes, you know, and kind of in a low position and, and ready for someone to check you or something. And because I think the world is really just shifting around you and like you stuff's going behind you and around you and in front of you and it's actually even impossible to have this 360 view right now to your point about things changing like you know i think if you go on twitter right now there's like 40 new interesting ai things happening every two and a half hours for example stability just released like stable llm yesterday which is like their new newest open source model kind of even the dynamics like there's this llama project that you know has taken over the internet in the last few weeks or sorry alpaca which is built on llama and a lot of people are now shipping both things built on them but i think that's like a, a left turn where like three weeks ago everyone's like hey there's not any open source models that are anywhere as good they're still not as good but they're like 20 percent is good and so you're like is it going to be 50 percent tomorrow and so i really think about it that way and i think even i use five years but realistically i think even having a six or eight month roadmap that's like super crisp right now is challenging for most companies because if you look even the largest companies in the world are changing their strategy really rapidly google has come out with a bunch of new announcements Amazon recently released this Bedrock service, which is a new announcement from them. And I think there's just a lot of energy in the space. So that, that's like my high level, you know, number one core thing is like be dynamic. I think that's really the core takeaway. So then for, for you all at OctoML, like what is that dynamicism looked like? Like when you talk about updating the thesis, rethinking strategy, like how are you all navigating this? Like how is it sort of informed changing your approach at OctoML? Right. So I think when we started kind of touching back on how we thought about the business, it was like, okay, the open source being consumed by big companies, there are these like litany of challenges for adopting it, we're going to go solve those challenges. That was kind of our like first cut at the company was like, we're going to try to figure out how to turn this thing into a repeatable, scalable thing that many people can use. The first version of the company, really, like the first two years, is us really trying to do that productization, kind of scale up the project and also the, our product, and then sell it to enterprises. The challenge there, though, is actually what I what I kind of highlighted is that that part of the market where there's sort of high level needs like scale or speed or cost SLA, they're not actually that big part of the market. And so, if you think about really building like a sticky, repeatable, large business, then it's like that chunk of the market is not as large as you want it if you want to build the, you know, billion dollar, the multi-billion dollar, like at scale business. 
And also like users have a ton of other problems. Like when we go talk to people, they're sort of on this like low level part of the Maslow hierarchy of needs or at the very top level are all the things I was just talking about, which is what we were good <laughs> at. And they're hard problems, right? They're like the problems at the end of the journey for you. But people are like, hey, I don't know how to even use PyTorch to the full extent of its capabilities. Like, can you help me with that? Like, I have a funny story from the beginning days where if you compile TensorFlow with some different flags, it's like at the time it was up to two times faster. <laughs> we helped someone improve their speed by two times by just telling them this. And so I, I think <laughs> when you're in that world of kind of lower sophistication, you're like, oh, I built this really cool, sophisticated thing. But the user actually is like so much earlier in their journey of understanding the problems that that doesn't help them at all. And so I think that is actually a problem that is like writ large in the machine learning world, kind of to my point about this transitionary step is all of the activities have sort of been what I would refer to as like inward focused, where everyone is mm -hmm. focused at things happening inside of the machine learning world. For example, even if you look at like Hugging Face, a lot of the tools they've been building are designed for people building a lot of models. Like there's a hub that you can host a lot of models. There's the ability to write your own model, which are all valuable things. But in the greater world, like most people aren't going to do that job. And I think that that is where there's been a bit of a disconnect because for a while that that was the entire market. But I think we've seen, especially in the last six months, it's been accelerated. Most of it's happening in consumption. All of it's happening where, you know, the number of companies I've seen consuming OpenAI right now dwarfs like every company we probably ever talked to who's building their own model. And that's in three months. And now there's some hype normalization, like maybe in six months, it will simmer down a little bit. But I, I think that's unlikely. Like I, I think that one of the key hypotheses we came into the company with was that the amount of machine learning is going to continue to grow. And like the number of models people deploy will continue to grow per user, customer, etc. And I think that's probably true. And so I think for us internally, that has actually been the shift is just how do we go connect directly to the user and find some of these user problems that people are, are not paying a lot of attention to or are underserved and grow into some of these that might not be honestly as technically sexy, for lack of a better word, but I think are still important problems for end users because there's just a huge gap today. Yeah. And so when you're thinking about that, like in the context of, of your company, like what are some of those user problems that you're focusing on now that maybe were different at the previous thesis? I think a huge part of it actually to me is this open versus closed world that we're, we're entering in right now, which back to the open source roots and, and like the way that we started the company is like even the reason we wanted to do all this stuff, if you zoom like out to the why of the why, you know, like really far out, we were like, hey, it'd be really cool if the ubiquitous computing researcher can run ResNet on the small micro device that they have, or it'd be really great if I could move my model into my phone for privacy reasons. And those were really our motivators and even building the core tech was like, how do we like get the model? Model on this other device with these other characteristics. And I think we just got really zoomed in on that one for a while because it's technically a super hard problem. There was a lot of interest in just solving that problem. But I think if we zoom out, like those problems still exist for users. Like if I am a consumer of OpenAI today, if I have anything I want to address on it, whether it's customization, whether there's a business risk to me, for example, depending on a closed API or one that I can't deploy in my environment, whether it's security and privacy, whether it's customization writ large, like I want to change the pre-processing or post-processing in some way, I want to change the bias of the model, I'm worried about the cost of operating the thing. I don't have any recourse today. Like it's effectively use the closed thing that is significantly better. And there are open offerings out there. But the journey for me to actually use and consume them is really complicated right now. Like if you pick an open source model and try to run your open AI application on top of it, it doesn't work. Like we actually just hosted this huge lane chain meetup at Octomel in Seattle. And we had a couple hundred people show up and there's a ton of excitement and people are building these cool applications. But almost all the lane chain stuff is designed around open AI like models, which support prompting in certain ways. 
And the, the dirty secret is on a lot of these open source models, like it just doesn't work. It might be that the models are even capable to do it, but it's sort of like OpenAI speaking its prompting language and the other models are speaking their own. And no one solved that problem, for example. Or mm -hmm. if I wanted to like move off over time and like run a shadow deployment and test as I moved my own model, how do I do that? If I want to fine tune, again, there are recipes, but I'm kind of left on my own. And so I think there are a whole set of problems here that are just unexplored. Like I don't think there are that many people solving them because they're tricky. They're very user focused. They're not as much fun as building a hub or the platform or the ML ops tool. And so I think that this is where there's going to be a lot of room for people to innovate and not just us, but I think in the market. And I think you see some people doing things like this right now, but it's still really early days. I think our point of view is that open really is going to be valuable to people. And then I think we're going to see the same thing that's happened in open source. If you take sort of stable diffusion, I think it's a leading indicator of where things will go everywhere else, which is that closed image models were not very good a year and a half ago. And Dolly was leading for a while. And then when stable diffusion came out, they just kind of caught up. And honestly, if you look right now, from a commercial standpoint, runway ML's products or mid journey are significantly better than anything else you can obtain. And, and they're built on open models. So I think we're going to see that where a lot of that value gets concentrated in there. And then there's a gap of how do companies like bring that into their ecosystem and have control over it. And I think that that is one of the, the ways I feel like we are shifting our focus really is like, how do we help people run that entire journey? Because there's a ton of problems there. And then when you solved all those, you have all the problems we originally set out to solve, which are like, how do I make it fast? How do I scale it? How do I make it like cost effective? So th that, that is like kind of the journey that, that we see happening. Such a, such a powerful perspective. And so that brings me to the next thing I want to ask you about. I loved how you mentioned and talked about the where is this on the engineers Maslow's hierarchy and and kind of mapping the problems that people are facing sort of as that as a framework. I'm a big Maslow's you know both higher education background. I think that's like everybody's required to take a Maslow's hierarchy like part of their psychology <laughs> class. So I love that. Sure, I think it's also a really visceral one of like if for anything if if I don't have food then like I don't care about the other. <laughs> totally, totally. Like it is such a powerful prioritization. So I wanted to talk to you about like some of the different distinctions around the sophistication of your users. Because like in this world, we're talking about users, like there are like the high sophisticated audiences. And then there's also like the low sophistication users. How do you think about optimizing your product serving sophisticated users or, or I guess the differences between a lower sophisticated user and a high sophistication user? Give us some some insights and dynamics there. I think the challenge, like, I think and it's different for every company. I, I think some start where their initial wedge entry into the market is with the low sophistication user. And, mm -hmm. and you know, whether you're calling it PLG or, you know, product-led sales or bottoms up or, you know, people have a lot of words for it. But I think if, if you kind of enter the world where you're doing the Slack thing, where you're getting small teams to sign up, what you focus on first is very different than if you try to immediately go, which is where we started. And sell the enterprises where there's a set of features that they care about that are very disjoint from the end user. I think the challenge, though, that, that behooves the people kind of in the first camp is that you get an experience that is usable by a lot of people. Now, it might have some limitations. I think that you have different challenges in both worlds. I think in that world, the problem is if there are hard, like, systems, technology problems at the end of it, there's not really any guarantee you're going to be able to bridge those. And I think on our side, we know we can solve a little a lot of the really hard problems, but can you build like a really great experience for people? And so I think for us, it's been like kind of taking the same capabilities that we know actually solve problems for these higher end users and, and customers we've worked with and taking them back to how do we strip these down so that they kind of work by default. And then we kind of layer the complexity back in. I don't know why, and probably because I love cooking, but I always think in food metaphors. And so the way I've been thinking 
thinking a lot about serving these kind of users is like a layer cake where there are sort of the base layers, which kind of expose the functionality that sophisticated users want. And you layer on the toppings to make it more appealing to less sophisticated users. But that that modularity in the way that you build your product and think about it allows you to later then say, all right, we're going to split this out and we're going to sell this as a different offering, or we're actually going to have like two cakes that use the same base cake and thinking of pieces of your technology and this back to the technology perspective, how does your technology support your ability to build these sort of disparate product experiences? I think there's some great examples of this in the past and people run this different ways. Like this is in the DevOps world, but HashiCorp has become incredibly successful. A lot of what they did was build tools that users really loved, but then they figured out ways to kind of layer. They went one direction. So like they built Vault, they released Vault into open source. They started selling Vault as an enterprise product that has different sort of layers clicked on top of it. And then now they're finally selling it as a hosting offering. In there, they're actually addressing multiple spectrums of users. It's kind of a little shuffled because it's sort of the middle sophistication is what they started with. And they then kind of grew to enterprise sophistication. And then finally, they offer the thing that's like cold sign up, self-serve product where you can have the cloud where it's all managed for you. And I think that there are different journeys depending on how your product looks, where you Mm -hmm. want to take that path. You know, I think the other one that's classic is like for the Slacks or products like that, you know, they, they start selling to small teams and then they build actually there was a big fight at UW probably the best thing I ever did at UW was I got the entire department <laughs> onto Slack so there's like a 2000 or more probably more than that now person Slack that all the CS departments on before that there was no central communication system besides email for a while a big fight was that it was not a FERPA compliant the, the education standards the department would not officially buy it so it was kind of this skunk works thing for a while where it was not official until we could get the compliance but I think that's worked really well for products like Slack and I think it's all about kind of how you have to think about your dynamics and how you grow grow and live long enough as a product to kind of cross those thresholds. Because, you know, I, I think as we know, even product market fit is not like an instantaneous moment. It's sort of this smooth, sometimes discontinuous, you know, jumps as you move through it. And I think the journey of a lot of startups is like, how do you go from this phase to the next phase? That is more of a personal journey you have to navigate as a company is how do you think about that? But I think that that's the frame that we've taken is we have these advanced capabilities that we believe have a crazy amount of value. How do we get them to users in a really simple way? Even if we turn some of it off for a while, how do we bring it back to them over time so that they can consume it in a really digestible, clear way. One of the questions I really wanted to focus on was, what does that journey look like to go from advanced capabilities to simple users? For somebody listening who maybe is building like a pure technology play company at the time and are in this space where knowing the dynamics and how the landscape is shifting and needing to move more towards like a user-focused or product-focused company, what does that journey look like? And have there been elements from the Octo ML journey that might be interesting to illustrate that pathway to go from like technology to a product-focused company? I'll qualify and then and also tell our story, which I think is very company specific. One challenge I think we have, which is different, is we have a large number of really smart, really talented people who are PhDs who are like by training lightning focused on getting some of these details right, which is incredibly important for these later stages that we talked about. That can also leave you blind a little bit to some of the user needs because you're so focused on these problems. And I think that's been true for me and my co-founders and a lot of people at the company. So I think our cultural shift has been like, how do we elevate the user and the journey to be top of mind every day? And how do we think about that? That has been the hardest part actually is just shifting the perspective of zoomed in on solving the problem really well to Mm -hmm. solving like, or or like changing actually what the problem is. I think that's actually the issue is like the problem is for everyone in their head that they're solving is solve this technical problem, but kind of like zooming back out to why are we solving this technical problem? What are we actually doing? And 
who are we doing it for before we get into how we're doing it, which I think the challenge is when you're technology focused, you're immediately at a how already. And I think that's actually the biggest thing that you can think about is, am I a solution in search of a problem? Or am I connected to a problem? And it, there could be two, at least two realities, right? One, it actually, you're not solving a problem anyone cares about. But I think what more often than not is you just haven't articulated the other parts. Then often the challenges that you're facing are just due to the lack of clarity around what you're actually trying to achieve, especially when you have smart people. And, you know, I, I think startups are often filled with really bright people who are doing great things. That, that like clarity and organizational aspect to me is like one of the key challenges of doing this. And I, I think in order to do that, it's all about just sh you have to really shift the processes and you have to get alignment from like the key people on doing this. And it makes it worse when you also have customers who are aligned to the technology, or you have users, like when you're in open source, I think this is actually one of the big challenges of open source is that you have all these users who actually aren't paying you money, which is very easy to get attached to their problems, but their problems might not actually be connected to your product problems. And I think that's another angle for open source companies that's a little special is that's another way to get focused on the wrong problems because you've kind of conflated back to lack of clarity. Are we solving this for ourselves? Are we solving this for our user? Are we solving this for a customer? Is this an open source problem? Disambiguating that and getting that clarity is like the best thing that you can do is just take a pause for a second from the chaos of everything going on. Because the startup's always busy. It's easy to be heads down and just kind of step back and like make sure it's like, why are we doing this? What is it connected to? Like I recently was talking to another founder. I was like kind of asking about like taking a big deal from one customer versus in a, like a less clearly repeatable way, focus more on developers, but it's like money that's on the table effectively versus taking you know, a more repeatable SaaS path that has some more uncertainty around it. And I think my advice to him was really just calculate it because I think that's another way that we all kind of get emotional. Technology, often we think we're being logical, but there's human emotion creeps into it every time. We have our biases and we just don't do the math. And like, it's not hard math. Like even just back of the napkin, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it's like, does this make sense? And like, kind of what is the opportunity cost of doing this? Like if we have a 20% chance of succeeding in our heads for a million dollars, and we're going to spend $5 million in engineering to do it, like that doesn't make sense. Like we can all like kind of agree to that one. But I think sometimes people are doing things like that. And the numbers might not be say as stark, but I think that's an angle where you can really be wrapped around because there is a user who has a problem. And so even being user focused, to be clear, is not always enough. And especially if you have multiple classes of user. So I think that's like one or one set of, of frames that I've taken to it. And again, I think every company is completely different. You know, like our open source is different than some people's open source where, you know, they have a different problem. Like, you know, there's been Elastic or these other people where their biggest challenge is actually competitors coming in and building competing products on top of them. That wasn't our open source challenge. I think ours is more, we have this sort of core capability, which is a great piece of technology, but not a product. And I think this is closer to say virtualization or something like that, where, you know, virtualization is an amazing piece of technology, but that's not what VMware sold to start. Like they sold other products and EC2 is not just virtualization. Like you're buying, you know, virtualization powers it. But I think kind of separating those two aspects is another key thing of like, is this a, an enabler piece or is this the product can also cast some dust or cloud in the air that, that obscures your clarity. There's like three incredible levels of, of filtration. I love just the sequence of questions that you, that you shared of like, why are we solving this problem? What is it connected to? Who is this for? Then how are we going to do it? And then in the debate of like, calculate it, do the work, calculate it, and using that as a way to distinguish, especially between different classes of users. Right. And just try to take your emotions out of it because we're all, I mean, um, this is a mantra for myself, I guess, more than anyone else too, is like, 
it's so easy to get excited and excitement is feels good. It, it allows us to turn off sometimes the calculating part of our brain. And, and it's funny, especially back to working with really smart people, like I think we can all be really smart and then sometimes have these sort of gaps. You can have them in your personal life, you can have them in business. And I think we, we should all check our bias there of like, are we doing this for reasons that are well calculated and well thought out? You know, I think some people call it being data driven. I like to use truth seeking sometimes of like, what is the, the true, you know, thing underlying all of this going on? Another frame I like is also accuracy of just like, hey, we're continually sort of taking a measurement on the environment and trying to get an accurate model. It's not gonna be perfect. But like an accurate model, you know, it's just really challenging not to fall into those patterns where you don't do that. And uh, I think that's a hard part about the startup is there's so many other pressures going on that you sort of it's like going to the gym, you know, you gotta you gotta create a commitment to keep doing that over and over again. And as the team gets bigger, it's not just a commitment for yourself, it's a commitment from everyone on the team to think that way and, and challenge each other, to be honest. I want to I talk about business models and how to, how to think about the business model around this type of company and maybe making like pivots to how you structure your, your business model. You mentioned one thing, open source problems may be at risk of like conflating end user problems. So I was wondering if you talk a little bit about the transition from open source company, open source business model to more of an enterprise focused or user based focused company. How are you thinking about like the business model for like an AI ML driven company in making that type of shift in in model? For us in the beginning, it was really more like that we had this sort of open development that we we wanted to flywheel into, you know, kind of the enterprise business that we're running. I think the way that we thought about that was that it would be like 100% of the work that we did, you know, would transfer into this enterprise model. I think to our point is like there's some stuff in the open source that actually is for the project itself. It's not actually for the business. I, that is the maybe the tax or the cost of being open. It sometimes it's worth paying, right? I'm not being negative about it. But I think that first figuring that part out was like a key aspect. And then I think the other part is back to calculating again, which is like just honestly doing back the envelope math. If you're thinking about this is a value capture, or this is how sticky it is, or this is how repeatable it is, how do you actually work through some of that? For example, one problem we had on the optimization side is that optimization itself is not as sticky as you want it to be. It's, it's one of those things where people can do it kind of one or two times or n times, and you don't necessarily get repeated value from that. And I think we've taken some steps to address that in the last couple of years. But that was like one of the key problems when we first set out was like optimization alone has this really high amount of value once and then it drops off really rapidly. When you think about the kind of where your value is distributed, that I think really goes into your business model where if you think about really great successful business models, they find ways to provide continual value that's like at a consistent like kind of floor and sometimes you get more, but like you're always getting that floor level of value. And so I think that was the problem to me of just bundling the open source offering. So for example, with the kind of the first iteration of the enterprise product, one thing that we changed was making it more about the ability to continually explore all the possible options and make sure that you're always getting the best so that it becomes more of an online process for you where instead of, you know, running it once, get the optimized thing out and run it, it is much more about how do I know that I'm constantly sort of cost optimizing or latency optimizing and getting the, the thing that I want out. I think the final part, which is what we've been working on for the last six or eight months is making the entire process also automatic. A big challenge with some of these models, too, is that like when the enterprise kind of world, you often are willing to do things that are more bespoke because everyone has these complicated environments, there's a lot of complicated requirements that can work against building a, a really repeatable product because there are steps in there that enterprises want to control that end users don't. And that's actually a tension. And so I think an angle of that is just that how do you design for the person who wants control and the person who doesn't want control? 
if you're going to make a shift in the business model or expand the business model to support multiple models, you need the product and the technology to kind of snap to that. And I think that's actually where we've been for the last year is really how do we provide both an enterprise offering that delivers the value we want and how do we provide a user offering and how do we overlap the pieces of the technology, the product, so that we're not building two really big products or five really big products, but we're building sort of a core product that powers maybe one or two different experiences or one or two different configurations or deployments of it. Has there been an answer to that question? Because I'm like, I'm thinking like beyond even just like more of an AI ML driven business model, like anybody who is serving multiple types of, of users, like for example, Jerry, who founded ELC is also starting a company that's building out like a community ecosystem, like a virtual community ecosystem. So there's both the user side of it, there's like the administrator side of it. And then there's like all types of different roles within it that all have separate experiences that you could optimize for and to then funnel down to like an end core product that like supports all those people, whether that's enterprise all the way up down or just like the end user. What was an answer like in terms of like finding the sweet spot there or like a current version of the answer? Yeah, I think for us, a lot of it is kind of coming back to creating some more separation between the experiences. I think that's actually one of the other things we struggle with is we're like, we're going to build one monolithic thing that will solve everyone's problems. Another tension that we felt, which we've sort of turned our focus more to the cloud is that we tried to build a product that targeted edge and cloud. It turns out that one is honestly unresolvable in the same product. From my perspective, it's the tensions in the way that people want to use it, the way that they want to buy it, the way that they want to deploy it, the way that they want it priced are just too far apart. Back to like my Vault example, I think if you have a, say, open core foundation that has plugins or is parameterizable or, you know, is customizable, then I think you can offer the enterprise one where you kind of factor some of the features out and then you can provide the hosted one. And those are two separate products from like a way you sell them and you think about it. But the mass of the product technology sort of R&D investment is still sitting kind of in that core part of the question you all have to ask yourself is like, is it possible for me to do that kind of sharing? Or, or am I really trying to build two different things? And I think we're back to my clarity question, which is like, what real problem are we trying to solve for people? You know, one thing that we're, we're gonna, we've are we been talking a little bit about and we're gonna release is, you know, kind of more focused to low sophistication users and it's kind of a compute service for them. But the underlying technology powering that is also something that, you know, enterprises can consume on their own premise. They provide their own compute, et cetera. We've been working really hard to engineer and build that in a way that allows us to go target both of them. And that then rolls up and allows us to repackage other capabilities we've built in our other product offerings. You know, it's still work every day, obviously, to iterate on that and get it right. And we're still designing. But I think doing that, and then I think the other part is being user-focused, is finding the right design partners that actually meet the target persona you want to go after and the needs you want to go after so that you can actually refine with people. Because I think it's also another failure mode is kind of getting over your skis and building hypothesized features that are exciting that actually don't really move the needle again and, and being calculated about, okay, what is really important to people? The number one startup lesson <laughs> I've taken is that the things that you care about don't necessarily matter to users. And, and I mean you to mean the company, the team, you know, et cetera. And you constantly have to be careful not to do like transference of your own desires or thoughts onto the end users or conflate yourself with an end user. For example, I'm relatively sophisticated. And so I constantly am like in my mindset of like, I got to go back and be like, okay, what would I do if I didn't know all these things? I think that kind of really ties into the, even the pricing and bundling of it. Because like, for example, in the AI ML space, right now, a lot of people are thinking about consuming just in terms of images or text out. They're like, I want to pay a dollar per text unit or milli-dollars per kilo token or whatever, you know, like they're these models. <laughs> yep. And that might be the right way to consume for people. 
or not? You know, and, and I, there are actually open questions, I think, in all of this. Um, and I've heard people say this a lot. I think this is like well-known advice, but I think experimenting in the way that you think about pricing and the way that you talk to people about it is also really important. Your customers will also tell you if they want to buy it like that, they will. And if they don't, they'll say no. And like sometimes it's also simple in that way is like people will tell you. Um, and so getting feedback from the right people at the right time is also, I think, an essential part of like doing the refinement. One of the perspectives that I was really excited to get into is how you think about approaching like a product marketing strategy with an ML business where you are trying to serve low sophistication and high sophistication users. Are there any lessons learned uh, around the experience of like product marketing within the space? I honestly feel like the the key takeaway to me is, you know, people use this in other the like keep it simple, stupid, you know, kiss principle. It's a little bit of the same here is that the really fancy technology right now, especially with the hype cycle creates like an, an increased noise effect where two complicated marketing pages make it even worse because no one really knows what you're doing. As people are building what I'll say is like ML powered application, like sort of these ML native applications, like, you know, the smart assistant or the copywriter or the things that are helping people. I think you really want to, you know, focus on how you just really connect to the end user population and keep the product marketing targeted on them and, and their actual need and their journey. Because I think, again, back to the ML space, like I think ML ops, I'll pick on ML ops a little bit, but I think a lot of ML ops spaces like this where they're building a toolkit to build tools to solve a problem. And then if you go and try to product market or position that it's like, who is this actually for? And what concrete problems it's solving for me, it, it becomes too abstract. And I think this is another danger if you're a really smart technical person is that you're speaking to technical people in in a technical way, which I think can be fine when you're hitting this high sophistication sort of early adopter crowd. But you know, if we're in this crossing a chasm moment for AI, how do you find a way that resonates to people who actually understand understand what the shape of the problem is. For example, in our space, a lot of people were coming and they're like, hey, my model is too slow, or like, it doesn't run because I run out of memory, or like, there are these actual problems they're coming with. But if you're like, hey, we have this amazing compiler technology, you know, and we talk to you about it for 40 minutes, that's not effective product marketing, where if you're like, hey, run your same model, don't worry about the hardware, let us give you control of it, but take away these problems from you and kind of talk about it in the, those terms in terms they understand the SLA or the thing running. I mean, and that's the reality. A lot of stuff doesn't even work for people today. So I think kind of trying to bring it back to the simple terms and thinking about how do you connect to a really simple story? And then also just back to concrete problems. Like I'm a user who is building a document Q&A system. How does this help me do that? I think you can take three to five of the ML products on the market right now, and you can slot them into that story. And I think we saw this a little bit. I was saying we had this lane chain meetup. There's a ton of interest in this project. It's been growing really fast. You know, the founders just started a few months ago. They're doing a lot of great work there. And people are building a lot of applications on top of it like this, where they have a real problem. Like someone was like, hey, I'm a legal company and I want to do document Q&A. Or this was funny. Someone wanted to be able to query the books they read. This was more of a a hackathon project. But you (laughs) see people then using things like it to generate character backstories and, you know, it's like those are concrete problems people have. So kind of surveying those, understanding them and connecting them back and getting it simple. I think the angle that you have to be careful, which I think we're still trying to figure out ourselves, obviously, is how much of the technology you let creep back in so that back to the credibility, how do you stay credible with a technical audience while also keeping it simple enough to attract people, especially in the noise? Because I, I think back to how do you adapt and change? I think that's actually the hard part is now there's a bunch of companies who have appeared in the last year who 
sound very similar to what we're doing or what other companies are doing. But if you've been someone working in the space for six or seven years, you have a huge amount of expertise. But now you actually have a product positioning and marketing problem because of the amount of noise where you need to like penetrate the market and tell people what you're doing. But people are inundated and overwhelmed with just the kind of same sounding pitches over and over again. And then I think the final angle of it is also about brand. Companies that have done this well, I think Hugging Face is a really fun brand. They're like really good at positioning themselves with like the cutesy emoji logo and like the way that they <laughs> even kind of the their aesthetic. Finding ways to, to, to set yourself apart that way so that people kind of can really understand what you're about. Again, I, I really like a lot of stuff the Runway ML guys are doing. You know, I think they went to art school. They have a very like nice aesthetic. Like they did an AI film festival. Like their website's very visual and fun. I think those are ways to pull people in. And when you're building a technical product, you might not be able to have the same level, but you gotta you gotta figure out how to do some of those things. You know, you can't just treat it as a, a cut and dry technical thing. I love it. The simplicity element is so important. And I'm also imagining like you could use some of these large language uh, model tools to explain this problem like I'm five and start to get some some a little bit more simple. But the tools now make that part easy. Like with the translation, if you're caught up in the complexity, it's all available now. You can you can simplify. No, I agree. And, and you know, you also you can do the human learning too, where you just take it to your friend, uh, or, you yeah. know, whatever. And I think you can find friendly voices who will be like, Hey, I don't really understand what you're saying. And I, I think finding um, another thing like David, who's our, our head of business and marketing always says is kind of kind of find your your devil's advocate and like who is the person that you, you kind of go to to get that feedback and I think if you find those people you can use them to keep you honest as well as you're working on trying to figure out your story and I think it's super important to have a couple of those in your life if you're a founder or if you're head of marketing or you're a you know a CTO or whatever you know in those jobs to be able to kind of keep you grounded and give you some feedback. Any final thoughts on predictions on the ML market and ML market participation to throw out there for people to think about, to stew on, to reflect on? Any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Yeah, I think my like crazy galaxy brain version or what I like feels like galaxy brain is like, I think we're going to see a world really rapidly where every single application we use has one or more of these integrated into the kind of standard flows that you have. And they're going to all be customized, maybe to you. And I think that that is probably the world we're headed for. And it might not happen in a year. But I think the idea of personalization is going to blow up because it allows us to tailor things in ways we've never been able to do it before. I think one of the blockers is actually scaling that is crazy. Like if, if you were even a big company, say, uh, you know, you wanted to have a model trained per customer, if you have 10,000 customers, and you need a $1,000 a day GPU to run their model, how do you scale that up and solve all these challenges? Like I think there's still a big gap from really going to scale. I think if you see OpenAI today, they are even having trouble hitting big enough scale. Like I, I, I sign, I, you know, I pay for GPT plus or whatever, like many people. And you know, you get your 25 GPT four requests per day, and their their scale is not even as big as it's going to get. Right? Imagine if I mean they're already happening at Microsoft, right? Microsoft Office is incorporating this all over the place. Now imagine every product in the world has an LLM or some you know foundational model running with every interaction. How do you make this work? And then they're going to have to be customized because I think the idea, the only way to make this happen is to get the model smaller, which means that they become less general purpose. But it's fine because if I need a support agent, I don't need something that can pass the bar exam. We, <laughs> people have over-personified them a little bit, but I think you can also personify them in this way. It's like I don't need to hire a mechanical engineering PhD to solve my plumbing challenge. Like we have specializations in the real world. And I think the model world will happen, but we're just at the point where the sort of mysticism and pain of adopting them and using them is so high that we haven't reached that sort of inflection point. But I think that's probably going to happen. And so if you're thinking about building this space, I think the question is how do you build an architecture that allows you to have that customized experience? Because I think the GPT that talks to you the way that you want to 
is going to be how people have these differentiated products. And the ability to do that customization is going to be a capability that actually is your moat. Everyone building on top of OpenAI right now, they're very at risk, I think, from a business risk perspective, because they don't own their core IP. They have very little control over how it's versioned, and they don't know how it's going to change underneath them. For example, like OpenAI disabled one of the Codex models recently, which they brought back, but that could happen any day. The model could be updated. And that's the other thing. Like they're shipping updates to the model every couple of weeks. There are new problems waiting for everyone, but that's where I see, I think things going. It's just an insane world of personalization. Like you and I, instead of, you know, writing emails, we'll be sending bullet points to each other that will get expanded. And then I'll send it <laughs> over to you. It will get summarized again. And then you'll read bullet points <laughs> in your own voice or like the voice that you like to hear. Some powerful trends and predictions to call it there. Um, thank you, Jared. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? I'm always reading a lot of stuff. I mean, these days, I feel like because the AI fever pitch is so high, I haven't really been reading any books lately. I feel like I, I read a lot of AI Twitter. You know, I read a lot of papers. I kind of like a smattering of like random podcasts. But you know, I listen to like Mar VP of engineering makes fun of me because like I read business books outside of work. And I listen to like business podcasts, like after, you know, long days of work. He's like, why are you just after the whole day? Because I can't turn it off. It's <laughs> no, and, and some of it's fun. Like I really, I really, really, you know, I, I was just listening to the choir guys put out a Sega episode. I like all their stuff. You know, I got to meet them recently. They're very nice guys. I think really like the, the, the sort of tech history. I think there's a ton of great lessons buried in there. And I think just consuming a lot of news. You know, I will sample from all kinds of things. He's very popular, but I, you know, I, I read Ben Thompson every week and I really like, he's launched a couple new shows recently. So I listen to, you know, his sharp tech stuff that he's doing with Andrew and a few of those other things. So that's kind of what I've been listening a lot to lately. All right. Next question. Founder resources that have been most helpful. It's fine. A community is really honestly, maybe it's too like obvious or too uh, like simple of a recommendation, but I think finding some mentors in particular, I think is really good. Like I think there was a period a couple years ago where I went on like a, a soul search time where I was like trying to get some feedback and advice on how to do sort of my expanded job. Like I think for me at the time, it was like, how do you go from being CTO of a company of like 20 people to 40? And then it, you know, became more, much more than that. I, I think I talked to seven or eight people and I found like one or two people were the most like resonant with me or the most useful and like just kind of following up with them and trying to find times. And I think also evolving from that where like I wanted to like find a mentor for the entire duration. But I think I found like different mentors at different times who provided different viewpoints. I think that's also where finding good advisors is, I mean, it's, it's the same thing, but like that's one way to incentivize them to be your mentor, you know, is you find a good a company advisor and bring them on board, you know, people give equity or pay them or whatever. And, and I think having them around is really, really valuable because it's someone you have like a set time with who has some skin in the game and is like there to really help you and, and find those weaknesses that you have. I think the other thing is just honestly absorbing things out in the world, just reading a lot and and trying to like consume content and understand what other people are thinking. There was a Ben Horowitz and Ali, the Databricks CEO, were doing a podcast for a while or it was on Clubhouse at some point. And during like they had a bunch of good feedback on there that I thought was all super useful. And I think things like that are super helpful. And then I think my final one part of it is work on yourself. I think, you know, as a leader, it's challenging, like the whole job is hard. If you don't have your own sort of psychology and health and all these other things figured out, you're probably not gonna be a great leader. You know, it's a constant challenge. I'm working on it every every day for myself, too. But I think making sure that you actually put time in yourself and figuring everything out for yourself is really an important part, because you can't show up for everyone else at the company if, if you're not not doing those things. A powerful segue to rapid fire question number three, how do you diffuse stress? 
One part is, side to my last statement, I think is working on letting go of some of the stuff is as you get mm. bigger, as there's more going on, like you're not going to be able to do everything at the same quality bar and the same level of attention that you might have done in the past. This is back to academia for a second. But but one of my undergrad mentors had said this one time, and he had said something about being like underwater. And I was like, well, how do you not drown? He's like, at some point, you just learn to breathe underwater. And I think it, it is kind of another angle that I've always taken, which is like the mindset of like, I'm going to like, remove myself from being stressed. And like, I'm going to like enter a state which there is no stress is a really bad way to deal with stress. And so I think if you just kind of come to terms with like, hey, every week is going to be really hard in these ways. And I'm going to have to like, accommodate for that and kind of just accept it as a fact of life. I think that's like one of the most powerful like key steps to diffusing stress. Final question to wrap us all up. Is there a quote or a mantra you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Yeah, so I, I don't know, honestly, if this is a quote, I picked it up somewhere. I like I definitely am not not the inventor of this thing. But like the way you do anything is the way you do everything, you know, and kind of being really focused on just like that level that attention to detail and like craftsmanship, I think has been the thing that's been really like my mantra lately. And as part of like building these sort of more mass market products is just like being obsessed about these little details and trying to channel that not just on the technology side, but on on everything. My, my other version of this is like kind of thinking like a three Michelin star restaurant like they don't get the Michelin stars just because the food is good. And not just because they like, you know, use tweezers to place flowers on the food, but they pick your napkin up off the ground if you drop it. They think about every little thing to like where the lighting is. And so building a product versus a great piece of technology is that difference. It's not all the things around it. And so just thinking a lot about those kinds of like attention to detail tasks. And like, again, how you do dishes is how you do everything in your life. And so it's also a very mindful, like Zen kind of centering activity, which is like everything's equally important. And I think it can also to your uh, second to last question or whatever is diffuse stress because it's like, hey, this is also important, whatever I'm doing right now. I that is probably one of my top favorite quotes of all time. I I bring that up all the time in conversation, especially in the context of diffusing stress, because like in that moment where you are experiencing frustration, whatever is causing that frustration is probably appearing in other parts of your life. And so thinking about that and considering it and like making a different choice, I think is so powerful. Jared, thank you so much for an incredible conversation, an expansive exploration of the world of <laughs> AI ML right now in all of sort of the, the business model changes, the trends, the dynamics, the strategy. Um, just thank you for guiding us along the journey and, and all of the wildness that is emerging in this space. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I always enjoy talking about this stuff. So it's, it's good to just do the kind of coffee chat and hang out. Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you know when our first few episodes get released. And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc.comunity. And we'll see you next time.